Hey, welcome everybody to another installment of the Midtown Pastor Podcast, fill in the blank. <laughs> and today we are a man down. So guys, introduce yourself and let everybody figure out who's not here. I'm Dave Burden uh, from Cree Fall. I'm Brant Benetti from East Nashville. And I'm Randy from uh, Granny White. And we're missing Elliot. So guys, why don't you tell everybody what he said last week that got him kicked off uh, to where he can't be here today. <laughs> uh, he and Britta and their home was affected pretty dramatically by the storms that rolled through last Sunday, and they are, are still without power. So they retreated to the mountains of North Carolina to be with Elliot's family so they could survive with their uh, three little ones. Hard times, but we'll look forward to them being back and him being back on the podcast next week. And today we have a really familiar passage of scripture that we're going to be reading. I'm thinking that if you've never even been in church, you have heard the term the prodigal son, but you may not know what the word prodigal means. Yeah, I was doing some study this week, getting ready for this, and um, a lot of the commentators you know, said that the word prodigal actually means extravagant or generous. I know for me, I always kind of grew up hearing that it meant you were the runaway, you were the one who made bad decisions, but the word is actually reflectant more of the extravagant grace and nature of the Father in this story. So it's a term of, of generosity and a term of extreme love. And it's so crazy that our perceptions when we come to a biblical story can be so shaped by things that are not from the Bible. Right, whether we're Christians or not Christians, that when we hear these stories, we have all kinds of ideas about them based on the ways even some of these stories have been put to use in cultural uh, settings and narratives that really can change the way that we see these passages. Brant actually preached this passage on our video sermon that will be released on Sunday. And this is a time for us to go just a little deeper into the text. And Brant, I'd love for you to talk just a second about this parable is in the context of three parables that Jesus is sharing in this whole chapter. So this parable comes at the end of Luke 15, and the opening to Luke 15, it starts like this in verses 1 and 2. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, the him here being Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So we have this picture of Jesus being with his friends, people who are tax collectors and sinners, people that the Pharisees, kind of the religious leaders of the day, looked down on. And they're kind of standing at a distance watching this happen, and they're grumbling amongst themselves. And Jesus sees what's happening. He gets this dynamic that's going on because it's a dynamic that we've watched play out over the entire book so far. And Jesus confronts it in a really head-on way. And he starts it by telling this parable of a lost sheep, of a shepherd who has a sheep that's wandered far away, and the shepherd goes to get that sheep. He leaves the 99. The 99. Isn't that one of our songs? Leaves the 99. <laughs> nice, dude. It's an audio adrenaline song. I don't know if you guys are aware of that contemporary Christian music band from the early 2000s. But mm. uh, we also talked, or Jesus also tells this parable of the lost coin, which is a woman who loses a coin. She has 10 coins, loses a coin, and she sweeps her house, goes through all this effort to find it, and then throws a big party for her friends once she's found her coin. Did Audio Adrenaline write a song about the lost coin? <laughs> no. I'm just wondering yeah, how that song would go. Not that I know of, and if they did, I, I would know, so no. <laughs> and then we get to this uh, parable of the lost son, and each of them kind of builds and adds a different element to this picture that Jesus is trying to paint, both to confront but also to draw 
the Pharisees to him. And I love that in all three of the stories, partying is involved, like serious partying. So why don't you read the passage for us, Brent? So this is Luke 15, starting in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, and I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Wow, what an epic tale. So much in this story that we could kind of pick apart. But let's start with the younger brother. If you were an original Listener of this story, why would you find what the younger brother was requesting of the father so shockingly unbelievable? Yeah, I think, you know, for him to come and ask for his share of the estate, which if there are two brothers would have been a third of the estate because the older brother would have been given two-thirds as the older brother— For him to come and ask for that from his father while his father was still alive would have been the equivalent of basically telling your father, I wish you were already dead so I can have what you're going to give me now. And what he would have been asking for, I mean, it wouldn't have been like the father went down to the bank and, you know, (laughs) got him a notarized check or something. He would have been asking for land here and to have his portion of the estate basically liquidated into cash. And so it wasn't just like savings. It was what the father would have amassed over the time of his entire life, literally having his land, which land in that day, it's hard for us to kind of understand in our context, uh, but land was life. (laughs) That's why like we even, you know, God promised land to Abraham. Land was incredibly important. 
And so for him to say, I want, I want you to take a third of your land, liquidate it, and give me that in money would have been an incredible uh, offense to a near uh, Middle Eastern patriarch. So much so that most people believe that if that would have happened to a father by a son, that father would have had the right to violently have him thrown out of his home. And yet, that's not what this father does. Hmm. I mean, I think about it in our context, what could be somewhat equivalent to that? It'd be like me going to my parents and saying, I want you to sell your house and figure out a different living arrangement so that I can take the part of what's going to come to me when you're dead. Right. And I know that the story, we don't want to go beyond necessarily what Jesus is trying to say here, but it does illustrate something that we all have experience with, and that's where desire spills outside the bounds or the banks of what's normal and good. And this young man obviously is discontent with the life that his father has given him and has decided that there's a life over the hill that is the one that he wants, and at whatever cost, he's going to get over there. Talk a minute, guys, about the power of desire, especially for the things that are outside our reach or even the things the Lord says, no, that's not for you. I think what's hard about answering that question is I can think about so many instances in my life that are really painful that I look back on and realize I really wounded people that I love and care about. I wounded myself and I've lost relationships over decisions that I've made that are like this. Mm that there are scars that have been left on me and that I've left on other people because of how this has played out in my life. And so thinking about what does that look like, I mean, it's it's hard to think of a story to tell that kind of pulls that out from my life that doesn't expose or almost re-hurt other people in a public setting like this. Yeah, I find that there is something inside of me that if you tell me I can't do something, it actually makes me want to do it even more. It's the whole wet paint situation that if you see a sign that says wet paint, there's this desire that wells up in me to touch it just to make sure. (laughs) And there is this curse that we've all been born under, this curse of sin, that the very nature of that curse is to rebel against the goodness of the Father and to basically say to the Father, whatever you think is good for me, I know what's good for me, but I got to get away from your good for me so I can get to what I believe is good for me and set myself up as the king of my own kingdom? Scripture, especially the wisdom literature in Scripture, is so clear on the fact that we have desire inside of us that is good and God-given, placed inside of us by Him, and that that desire has a target that is directly connected to being with Him and in relationship with Him, which... We see both of these sons, eventually they're, they're very alienated from the heart and relationship with their father. They're, they, want his, you know, they want his things, but they don't want him. And so, you know, Randy, like what you're saying, desire, oftentimes when sin, because sin has so fractured my, even my own understanding of what my heart truly does desire, it very quickly and easily can find itself placed on something either too small or too limited. Obviously, he got a he got a lot of money here, but he was still able to burn through it. He squandered it, and he came to his senses and went back to his father. So like you, Brant, I can think of many times where I was so sure of what I desired, 
I was so sure, you know, like Proverbs 19 says, desire without knowledge is not good. How much more will hasty feet miss the way? This boy has got hasty feet and he's sure about his desire, but he doesn't have any knowledge about it. And he's going to run after something that is not going to satisfy him. And we see that. He, he comes to his senses and realizes this is not what I was called to and made for. I mean, in many ways, it's a, it's just a replay of what we see in Genesis 3, right? Yeah. That God, in his abundant love and goodness toward Adam and Eve, put them in this beautiful garden. And he said, hey, hey there's this tree I don't want you to eat from. And the serpent, when he's speaking to Eve, this kind of deception enters the picture. And the deception is kind of under his question is, is God really good? And has he really given you this rule because he cares about you? Or is he actually keeping something back from you? Our original sin as people is us believing and, and acting out of the belief that God is withholding something from us by his rules. Mm. Mm. That those are meant as things to to hold us down as opposed to things that are meant to give us life. Yeah, I think growing up, this was a grand illustration of uh, don't be a bad person. And so the prodigal son, we call the first son the prodigal son (laughs) or the rebellious son. And we put people in that category that have addictions or people that have affairs or people that get divorced or people that go to Vegas because what done in Vegas never just stays in Vegas, you know? And we always tend to cast that younger son on those people. But the reality of it is, is that all of us have the younger son in us. All of us have said things that we wish we'd have never said. We've done things that uh, we wish we'd never done, things that actually produce shame in us. And even currently right now, it may not just be a past experience. I may want things right now and my heart deeply desires those things that are outside the boundary or the river of what God intended for me. Hmm. And those things actually remind me of the second part of the story of how much I need the Father's grace. So we come to the center of the story, which I love, and this outrageous father who not only gave his son what he wanted, he also is waiting for his son to return. So when the son comes up, he starts to confess his sin. And yet the father seems completely uninterested in his son's repentance. What's going on here? Yeah, I can't remember. I think I remember you saying this, Brant, when you were preaching on it, but just that for a son to return back home and for him to have done what he did to his father publicly would have been such a shame on the house and a shame on him that uh, if townspeople were to have seen him returning that they would have not allowed him even back to the father. The language here is so pregnant with the father's, he's got the binoculars out, like he's looking to the horizon because he wants to be the first one to see his son return. And, um, you know, really struck by the fact that he obviously has this very rehearsed and probably even understandably so rehearsed uh, re-entry plan with his father. You know, he says, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be a son, but make me a, you know, connect me with one of your hired servants. He's he, he's coming in kind of humbly, hat in hand, but it says there that, you know, the father sees him at a long way off. He goes out to him. The father's uh, moving towards him, even as the son uh, is coming home. And it says there he ran to his son, uh, which would have 
been just an insanely undignified thing for a patriarch to do. Everybody else in that culture could run, but men didn't run. And then he throws his arms around him and he kisses him. And before he can even get any of his repentance out, even any of his words out, he's been touched by the love of the Father. It just was kind of haunting to think about. I know for me, when I've had to go to own up for something I've done and how many times I've played out the conversation in my head, a lot of times those interactions, they go the way I think they're going to. (laughs) Where I go and the person's quiet and it's going to kind of be dependent on how I do this, how I explain what I did and how sorry I prove that I am, then that's going to trigger the affection. And this story is so crazy because what Jesus is saying is that the affection, the acceptance, the embrace, it all precedes the repentance. The repentance actually is triggered, you could say. Okay, we got to stop there because that... Okay, just listeners, just bear with us because we may overdo it here, but we have to. So you're telling me that forgiveness is not dependent not just in the story, but now we're talking about us and our Heavenly Father, that repentance is not conditional upon the sincerity of my confession. Because I know people that worry that if I'm not sincere enough when I confess my sin, that God's not going to forgive me. And so they try to create unusual amounts of sorrow in their own heart to show God that they're sincerely sorry for the sin that they've done. And you're telling me that's not the heavenly currency to get good forgiveness. No, it's not. And it's also operating under a presumption that that you really do know the depth of your sin. And I think that's why it's, it's so radical, because I think the Father isn't waiting around for us to fully comprehend or understand the weight of what we've done. He knows the weight of what we've done. And the fact that He's initiating this way and loving the, the younger son this way it should put our hand over our mouth because it's such a radical amount of grace for a son who who could never show enough sincerity in his repentance. I mean, that's what gets cut off in the yeah. in what he's saying, right? He has a condition for his father that he thinks is going to be enough, and, and he's kind of planned out in his mind what his plan is to get back into good enough right. graces. And it's treat me as one of your hired servants. right. And that's what he doesn't get out of his mouth because the father cuts him off. He has a very small view of his father's grace, doesn't he? Yes. It seems like it's a very much of a trade. Let's make a bargain here. He still thinks that his sin is small enough that he can bargain, and he also thinks that his father's love is small enough that his father has to be bargained with. And both of those things are total misunderstandings of the situation. So I got to ask this question because let's deep dive into grace for a minute. If I am in Christ, because the only grounds of my forgiveness is Christ's sacrifice on the cross and the power of his resurrection, if that's true, that I'm forgiven for one reason and one reason only, that Christ took my sins with him on the cross and paid them in full, how forgiven am I if I'm in Christ? Completely. Past, present, and future. Okay, so when you say future, so let's say that I commit a sin, or I committed a sin last night, and so I'm sitting here this morning and my confession is weak, and maybe it's not even there. How forgiven am I? All the way. Okay. 
So even though I've not confessed that sin, it's not hanging over me as an unforgiven sin because I've not confessed it yet. Correct. Okay, so if that's true, that I am forgiven for everything, I am free, then why should I ever confess anything? What role does confession have when it comes to grace? Well, it helps me experience what I have. So if I don't confess and repent of my sin, if, if I don't enter into that gift, you know, it's, it says God's kindness leads us to repentance. So it's his kindness that leads us to that because I can't actually step into the forgiveness and experience. I may have it, but I don't experience that I have it without confession and repentance. It's the means by which he's given us to bring that to him so that we can give him, you know, even as poorly as our repentance may be, we give that to him so that he can fill my hands with the grace and the forgiveness and I can actually experience what it is that I have had. He's not hanging it over me, but if I make the quality of my repentance uh, the key that turns the lock for God's storehouse of grace, then he doesn't have to hang it over me. I'm hanging it over me. And I'm the reason I can't enter into the party. Yeah, I think about that Scripture often talks about that when we become Christians, the old is gone, the new has come, that I was dead, but now I'm alive. And when I was old or I was dead or not in Christ, the currency of that world is uh, what we're seeing in this story, where the son's coming back and he's bargaining to try to get some kind of grace or forgiveness from his dad. And what you're talking about is the new life in Christ. And my old man doesn't understand the depth of that. And so I keep wanting to bring shame back into my walk with the Lord. I keep wanting to bring back in that I'm not worthy of the grace, that it's not mine. And I hold myself back from Jesus mm -hmm. using shame uh, as a display of some kind of spiritualness to the Lord. And yet it's the old man that's talking there. It's not the new man. And so when we repent... Isn't it true that it brings us back to the sanity of who we are in Christ? I'm thinking about this morning with uh, our elder team. We were praying through the Lord's Prayer together and got to the line of forgive us our trespasses. And one of the things that came up was this killing that took place in Georgia. Yeah. And I mean, part of what we were confessing is the ways we've participated in injustice in our world mm. and the ways our denomination has failed in that and the way as a church we fail to care about that and, and those kinds of injustices in our world. Mm. And I mean, what, what it's doing in me is it's softening my heart to things that I'm not capable of softening my heart to on my own. That on my own, I either resist responsibility because that wasn't me, or I try to beat myself up to make myself feel bad enough so that now I've done enough to be okay. Mm -hmm. And in repentance, Jesus is asking us and inviting us into a totally different dynamic where we're able to bring our sorrow that he gives us over our sin to him and to experience a healing that then drives us out in a different direction, not on the fuel of shame, but on the fuel of the love of what he's done for us. I think it's beautiful, Brand, because repentance is a response to grace, not uh, the purchasing of grace. And we see grace displayed in this passage in a way that I absolutely love because Jesus, this is Jesus, you know, he says that grace looks like music, it looks like dancing, and it looks like eating really good food. Like that's in the story. And uh, we don't have time to dive into why those things all display grace right now, but 
because we I want to talk about the older brother, the oldest son here, the older brother. What's happening here? Is this guy just a jerk? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I was say, yeah. Kind of. I don't know, man. I think that he's got a pretty firm case for having an attitude about this. Well, you know, again, we mentioned this at the onset that probably most of our experience with this story has been focused on the son that squandered everything and, and ran away and then came back. But because of the context that we talked about at the beginning, Brant, that you talked about, that he's talking to the Pharisees and teachers of the law about their grumbling with who Jesus is associating with, I think it begins to bring into focus that the older son might be just as lost as the younger son. He might be just as distant from the heart and relationship with the father, even though he's right in the backyard um, and working very, very hard, or apparently he says he's working very hard for the father. We can get to that in a second, but, you know, working very hard for his father. And if the younger boy is is lost in his, uh, I think I heard someone say he's lost in his badness, the older son might be lost in his goodness and in his good works and in his self-righteousness. You almost get the sense that this whole story is about the older son. When you go back to verse 7 of that chapter, Jesus was talking directly to the people that you introduced this passage by saying this is who Jesus was teaching in front of. And he said, so I say, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who needs no repentance. And you can almost feel like Jesus is talking directly to the crowd that was giving him the shame lips <laughs> for what he was doing, being friends with sinners. But talk to me a little bit about this older brother's goodness. And we see it really clearly that it's a speech he's been practicing for a long time. And what he seems to be very aware of is all of the things that he has done right and all of the things that his brother and his father have done wrong. So he's got a very extensive uh, record of his rights and all of their all of their wrongs. Yeah, his sense of his rightness or his value or even his relationship to the father, really. Just like the younger son said, I'm not worthy to be your son because I've my relationship to you is from the younger son's perspective based on what I have or haven't done. The very same thing with the older son. My relationship to you, <laughs> father, is based on what I have done. And what I have done is I have done everything right. He says, look. I think about when I say that in the middle of a kind of a, a heated moment. It's not the way a son speaks to a father. It's the way a peer speaks to a peer. And he's speaking down to his father at this point. And he says, I've been slaving for you. But it doesn't sound like he's been slaving for his father. It sounds like he's been slaving for himself. Hmm. Um, it's kind of the ultimate. So you're saying the older brother and the younger brother were driven by the same desires? They just went in different directions with them? Absolutely. Yeah. They both are focused on themselves. Uh, the younger brother is focused on himself and saying, I'm just going to do what I want. The older brother is saying, I'm going to do what you want for what I want. It's it's a you for me. I'm doing it for you for me. Classic you for me. <laughs> you for me. So It's so good because the you for me serves us so well. Yeah. Well, I mean, we talked about this with expectations last week. The expectations are, are great motivators. You know, a lot of us, our whole life and our sense of identity has been built on living up to the expectations that someone else has put out there for us to achieve. And I get my very sense of value 
and worth and identity and you know positional righteousness based on the fact that I've done it right. And so, yeah, when when younger brother who didn't do it right comes home and you know dad gets out the fatted calf for him, but he hasn't even given me the goat. Of course, it enrages the older brother because not just because the father has shown grace to the younger son, but the father is kicking the can of the economics of how this older brother values and sees himself. And he doesn't want the father's love and grace and mercy. He wants the father's payment for his good works. Right, right. It uncovers this entire economic system that this older son has built around which things are bad enough to be that kind of excommunicable kind of bad things and which things, you know, he's got a whole, a whole system that he's built up of what counts as good and what counts as bad. You better believe that all of the things that everyone else has done are the things that are really bad. Yeah. Right. Mm. And all of the things that he has chosen to do are the things that are the things that really count when all he's been doing in his mind is storing up more possessions that he can enjoy later when the father is gone. Yeah. Yeah, often this is called self-righteousness, and it's this attitude of uh, not needing grace, like you were saying, Dave, and really just wanting a fair shake. And for me to say to God, I want a fair shake from you, is to have an extremely elevated view of myself. <laughs> in fact, uh, you know, we see the traits of someone who's self-righteous right here in the story. A self-righteous person loves the courtroom because they love to keep records of their rights and they love to keep the records of your wrongs. And they always win on that exchange because they're selective comparison. They do compare, but we often say that comparison is the joy killer. Unless you're self-righteous, then you selectively compare. You select who you're going to compare yourself to and always select someone that you can win over, (laughs) that you have more rights than they do. There are also people that are incredibly angry toward grace that feels incredibly unjust. He refuses to go into the banquet. In other words, his life has been robbed of joy. There's no sense of celebration in their life. There's only, am I going to get what's due to me? There's also no community or connection, right? He says to his father, your son. And later the father reminds him very gently, your brother. Yeah. That I can't have brotherhood with anybody around me if I'm insisting on my rights because I'm holding them hostage to all kinds of standards that prevent us from having a relationship. So which brother was in the further away land? Mm, It's hard to say. I think they both were distant uh, for different reasons. But I do think that the danger of the older brother was how unaware of how far away he was, that he was so self-deceived. Like the younger brother wasn't deceived. It says he came to his senses, right? Like he he realizes, holy cow. <laughs> and even that's an act of grace, right? I have this like clarion bottom out moment where I, I wake up and I realize I'm I'm this far away from the father. The scary thing is, is when you're physically close to the father, but your heart is a million miles away. And that's the definition of religion, right? I'm keeping all the laws. <laughs> I'm doing everything you want me to do. But Jesus wasn't here to promote religion. He was here to promote a relationship with him. And the older brother, which is, I mean, you know, if we're connecting this to the Pharisees and teachers of the law, they they were committed to the law. They were committed to, you know, this religious 
tit for tat. I do what you ask, and I perform it perfectly. And you even see this in the elder brother where he says to him, I have never disobeyed your orders. How self-deceived do you have to be to say something like that and actually believe yourself? He says, I've never disobeyed, which is an exaggeration of his goodness, right? I'm exaggerating how good I've been, which allows me to justify this very, very low view that I have of the father and this very, very low view that I have of the brother. And so that's the way self-righteousness works is as long as, like you said, comparative righteousness, as long as I can kind of stack myself next to somebody else that kind of gets me above the tide line of sin, then I can feel feel good and feel right. That's what I, I need to feel good is my own righteousness. So. so the heartbeat of this entire passage is that there is this outrageous banquet of grace where there is music and there is dancing and there is incredible food, the best of food, not to mention the clothing and the ring of belonging that awaits us. And we see that the younger brother, his wild living kept him from the banquet and yet grace brought him in. And the older brother, his goodness kept him out of the banquet. And yet God is calling us all into this banquet that's full of joy and celebration. We were talking the other day about how sometimes we can walk into the banquet as the younger brother and still feel so ashamed to be in the banquet that we find no joy there because we're still living in this place of regret over our sins and it's hard for us to receive the forgiveness of grace. Or we can live like the older brother where we feel like that we don't need that much grace and that's way too extravagant. So I'd like for you guys to just close our time together to talk about if I find myself in either one of those camps, how do I receive the invitation of a gracious father who is the father that runs after me and the father who comes outside after me, the father who has plenty of robes and plenty of rings and plenty of fat and calves and lots of music and lots of dancing. (laughs) How do I this morning or this evening or whenever you're listening to this, how do we now enter into that banquet of grace? I do think there's some incredible peace that comes in the form of the fact that for both the younger and the older brother, the father goes out. I think in particular, because I, I certainly can relate to the elder brother uh, a lot these days, you know, the, the Pharisees and tax collectors obviously take a pretty good hit, often in our own, even minds and imaginations. But the idea that the father was out, had left the banquet, was outside pleading with them, come on, come in. And so I know for me, whether I'm either swimming in the in the shame and regret of squandering the goods uh, and the grace of the Father, or whether I'm stiff-arming Jesus and His love because I believe that I deserve something different and I don't like how He's handling a situation. It's very comforting to know that there is no stiff arm that I can give <laughs> and there is no distance a way that I can travel that keeps him from moving towards me. And that picture is profoundly encouraging to know that whether I'm lost in my goodness or my badness, he's the God who goes after what's lost. That even that picture of the younger brother who's make me a hired hand and maybe I can earn back the money and pay you back. You just picture the father looking at him and saying, my treasure isn't the stuff that I lost. It's you. I've got back what I want, and it's you. 
and really beginning to, to believe that what the Father wants is me. He doesn't want my behavior. He doesn't want my good works because, you know, those are filthy rags in comparison to his righteousness. Those aren't the things that make our relationship work. He's what makes our relationship work. I keep thinking about believing that whether I'm a long way off or I'm just in the backyard, the Father's coming for me. He's pleading with me. <laughs> Come into the feast and enjoy it. And I know for me, when I'm the younger brother, I, I don't repent. I'm so familiar with penance, not repentance. <laughs> I'll just prove to you that I'm sorry. And he's, he's saying, put down the penance. There's no penance. It's a difficult mindset to get out of that our goodness or our prayers or going to church or reading our Bible are not currency in which we earn the favor of God. Mm. I remember when I was a little kid, my family went to Six Flags, and my dad gave each of me and my two brothers some money so that we could buy a souvenir. And I remember going into the gift shop with my $5, and everything I wanted was just a dollar more. (laughs) (laughs) And I kind of feel that way with God sometimes, that I'm coming to Him and I see Him blessing other people with grace, and if I just prayed more, then I'd be able to buy more in God's gift shop. Or <laughs> if I just fasted, wow, that, there's a biggie. That would earn a lot of money on my you know, credit card for the gift shop. And to think that the gift shop of God, really, he's saying because of grace, I've given you everything you need for life and godliness. Stepping into that world of believing that God's love for me is that good and his grace for me is that abundant, as a friend of ours often says, it's too good not to be true. Mm. Brand, I'd love for you to talk just for a minute about there may be people listening to this that have never had an experience with the Father and His grace. And what we're talking about seems like a faraway, foreign thing. What would you recommend to that person? Whether you identify with the younger son or with the older son, because both of those things can be true, even apart apart from a relationship with God. A feeling of, oh, I don't, I don't need this thing called grace in my life. That thing about God or Christianity, that's fine for weaker people who, who need help, right? Or you may be in a place where it, it's hard to believe that anybody could ever love you or treasure you where you are. And to either person, the invitation of the Father is the same. It's to come and to confess, I need you. Mm. And that when you say to God, specifically to the person, to the work of Christ, I need you, uh, your Father is there and you find that he's hugging you. I think about this, the picture that's kind of been in my mind as you guys are talking is when I'm receiving a hug from someone who is much taller than me, which is not incredibly challenging in my life as someone who's 5'8 <laughs> and put on my driver's license, five, I'm 5'9. Five, uh, <laughs> that that when, a, when a larger person comes and gives me a bear hug, right? And this even happens with my dad as a, as a grown man when I go home. There's always this moment of, no, I don't need that from you. And then there's a moment of, accepting the hug and kind of the release and the relax of, no, I, I do need this. Hmm. That's the kind of repentance that we see pictured here is yeah. a, a coming home to a father who treasures us. It's astounding to know the scripture says the one who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. In other words, when we walk into that banquet of God's grace by simply saying, I need that, we're forgiven literally forgiven. The old is gone. It's gone. There's a new coming, but we cannot miss the fact that the old is absolutely gone forever. And our sins are thrown as far as the east is from the west, which 
is endless. And man, that is worth throwing a party about, right? Yeah. I think about how sometimes we all have this in ourselves. I think we want to tell our stories as these like nice linear progressions <laughs> and where this coming to Jesus is this intellectual decision. And man, there's something that is so worth celebrating about the grace that we've been given. So when Midtown was like three years old, we had a young man that started coming to Midtown and just listening to the sermons and meeting with people. And through those experiences, he actually repented of his sins and actually walked into the banquet of God's grace for the first time in his life. He became a Christian. And I remember sitting with him at Fido's over in Hillsborough Village. We were sitting outside and we were talking about this forgiveness and he leaned in and he kind of whispered, he says, does every Christian know this? <laughs> and I said, oh yeah. And he goes, how do they contain it? He said, I want to jump up on the building and shout it. Like he was so overwhelmed by God's grace. Literally, there was a party going on in his life. And it's true, isn't it? It's party worthy. Absolutely. To answer your question, Randy, about how do I enter into the party? One of the obstacles for me, oftentimes, and, and this is just from learning a very broken way of repentance is somewhere along the way I began to believe or I was taught somehow to believe that what what the Father wants or what God wants for me is He wants me to master my sin and He wants me to understand it and overcome it and it invites me into this place of until I've kind of worked through it, I can't enter into the banquet. And so it sends me down a trajectory of, trying to really heal myself and kind of get right enough to get into the banquet rather than, hey, he's the good father who's saying, come on in, like bring it all just as you are and bring it to me. You don't have to master it. You need to bring it to me and then receive what I have for you. And sometimes I just profoundly struggle with that. I can't come in until I've got it right. I relate to that so much. And there are times where the thing that I have to do is to literally stop thinking about <laughs> my sins so much that all the speeches that I'm practicing or all of the ways I'm in my head trying to feel sorry enough or put up walls or take down walls or in myself right or all the analysis, it's just stop. And sometimes I can't stop and I have to ask somebody else, hey, can you hear what's happening in my head? Because I know it's crazy and I can't stop and I need you to tell me what's true instead. Uh, so that I can just put this down and rest. As we close our time, you know, you may be the younger brother and you need to put down your shame and receive forgiveness afresh, uh, your understanding, and come into the banquet. Or you may be the older brother and um, you need to put down your self-righteousness and your pride and come into the party. So whichever one you are, the invitation is coming from a good and prodigal father. Prodigal meaning he is giving in a lavish way as he throws this amazing banquet. So Brant, would you pray for us as we end our time together? Father, we praise you that you are a lavish God, that you out of the joy and abundance of yourself would create us to share in your abundance, Lord, and that when that relationship was broken, that you desire to come back and bring us back to yourself. Lord, that the abundance and lavishness of your love and grace would look even greater through our sin. Lord, we praise you that you're a God who can make those kinds of things happen and has chosen to make those things happen. Lord, would you teach us to be people, to be brothers and sisters who 
are really good partiers who know what the music and the food uh, of your grace tastes like. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. Come away, come away, come and rise up from the grave. Christ is risen from the dead.